Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for the show. We have a special edition of the podcast here for you on this episode on Thursday, May 18th, 2023. I was the moderator for a discussion at the annual conference of the New York State Association for Affordable Housing, otherwise known as NYSAFA, N-Y-S-A-F-A-H. It took place in Manhattan in a big uh, venue with hundreds of people who work in affordable housing and other housing policy in attendance. And to open up the conference that day, I moderated a discussion with New York City's Chief Housing Officer Jessica Katz, who is Mayor Eric Adams's top housing official at City Hall, and the New York State Housing Commissioner Ruth Ann Visnauskas, who was previously on the program here a couple months back talking about Governor Kathy Hochul's housing compact plan as state budget negotiations were happening. So I was able to talk with both of them at this event, ask them a lot of questions about where things are in housing policy in New York, at the state level, at the city level, how they're working together, their frustrations about the fact that really nothing major related to housing policy on the issue of development and supply and the governor's housing plan and specific pieces that the city wants to see enacted. None of it was passed in the state budget, much to the frustration of both the governor and the mayor and their top housing officials, and of course, many other people. Uh, So what you're about to hear is that discussion that I had with Jessica Katz, New York City's chief housing officer, and Ruth Ann Visnauskas, the state housing commissioner. You'll hear at the very beginning, I referenced Brett, and that is Brett Garwood, the NYSAFA board chair who introduced our panel. So that is who I'm referencing in the first couple minutes because Brett Garwood, when he gave the introduction, was talking about uh, the importance of housing growth, the fact that New York is behind on housing supply, and some other things to set the stage for the discussion with these two top housing officials. So it was a really interesting conversation. I'm glad we uh, have the audio here from the NYSAFA conference. Uh, we covered a lot of ground with these top housing officials about what ha- what did and didn't happen in the state budget, what New York City's priorities are for these final weeks of state legislative session that are happening until early June. And the city is hopeful for some housing policy to pass the state legislature in the next couple of weeks. And you can hear, of course, the state housing commissioner talk about what they're trying to do as well, looking ahead to building more consensus and momentum around housing policy ahead of next year when the governor has promised to come back and revisit the issue again. But she's also talked about using some executive action in the meantime. So we got into that a little bit. We dug into what Mayor Adams and the city administration are doing on housing on their own without state policy, but of course also how they would like some help from the state on certain issues. We talked a bit about NYCHA public housing and a whole bunch of other stuff. We really got to a lot, a lot of interesting comments here from the city's chief housing officer and the state housing commissioner. Here is that conversation. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you all for being here. Thank you both for being here. Brett, thank you for the introduction. Um, A few comments from Brett that will help us kick right off here, but thank you all for being here. And uh, 
and I think um, having these two uh, first speakers here helped get everybody in the room quickly, so that's great. Um, but thank you to NYSAPA for having me. Again, my name's Ben Max. You can find us at GothamGazette.com. Thank you to uh, Brett and jo Jolie and Deborah uh, and everyone at NYSAPA for having me and having us and having this very important discussion. So. Let's get started. Um, as Brett was, was saying, there's been a, a shift, seemingly, in the political atmosphere, in the conversation in New York around housing supply. How would you each capture the shift you've seen over the last however long you want to define it? To me, it's been maybe two to three years now. How would you capture that shift? What's the promise of that shift? And what are the limitations of that shift um, that we're seeing? Do you want to start, Jessica? Sure. So yeah, I do think, I, I agree that there's been a real shift in the narrative around what housing needs are, what housing supply could accomplish. Um, I think that was, the, the fundamentals of supply and demand were sort of being debated over many years in New York City and across the country. And I think at this point, maybe that debate has settled down a little bit and the need for housing supply is a bit more settled in terms of being conventional wisdom. Um, that said, and, and, and sort of tr looking at housing the way that you would look at any other sort of commodity in terms of what, if, you, if there's too little of it, then the price is going to go up. Um, that said, there has that doesn't that doesn't mean that the poorest New Yorkers will benefit from an overall growth in supply in any kind of immediate way, and so that I think also has to be acknowledged. But that too has shifted over the last couple of years where for, the, for many, many years, Section 8 or any kind of rental subsidy voucher was the golden ticket. So if you're below a certain rental amount, you can't afford, you know, you, you can't afford to pay a rent in a way that's going to keep the lights on in that building. Um, so a, a rental subsidy voucher used to be a golden ticket that would allow you to pay to afford your rent and it would allow your landlord to keep the lights on. Um, and now that's sort of no longer the case. So for the first time in my career, there's thousands of people with vouchers, with that golden ticket, who are wandering around New York City looking for a place and can't find one. So I think that fundamentally shifts the debate as well, where that, that, that then proves one more time that housing supply is really what's missing, even for those who are lucky enough to have the rental subsidy. Yeah, I'll probably just add to that, but um, it was really, I thought, helpful framing when the governor came out and talked about jobs and housing and sort of the disconnect in our production, because I think we all live in this uh, um, understanding that the housing market is so tight, but when we started to talk about the last decade and sort of contextualize 1.2 million jobs, 400,000 units of housing, it sort of explains a little more why we are where we are, and I think also then helps a real kind of data-driven roadmap going forward, you know, both the City historically and the state more recently have operated within a housing plan. We've always been counting housing units, what we do every year, what kind, where is it? Um, but we've never really talked about it in the larger, not only in the larger sort of overall city production, but also in the overall state production of how many units of overall housing, not just affordable housing, should we be producing? And so I think that was sort of a fundamental shift, um, certainly in this last conversation, that I think is really helpful and I hope helps set the stage as we talk going forward about what is going to happen, what can we do, that we have a metric that we're bumping up against to say we have to be creating policies that are actually going to chip away and get us from, you know, pick your 500,000 unit uh, number or the incremental 400,000 over the next 10 years, whatever that is, right, we can now context, we can now look at policies in the, in the context of that and say how is it going to get us towards that goal, and I think that's a really um, a fundamental change in how we think about housing supply and how we think about housing policy. 
as a moderator, I think it's always important to say, if there's anything either of you says that the other one wants to comment on, please jump in and, and uh, keep me on the sidelines if, if you'd like. Um, you threw a couple of data points out there, Ruthanne. I was gonna ask each of you if, if there is one or two pieces of data that you try to bring to conversations to dispel myths or to prove uh, your case. Are there uh, pieces of data you take with you when you're talking to state legislators about the city's needs, likewise about uh, the state's plans? Is there something in this discussion around the conversation about housing supply and housing demand and the need for growth that are your sort of favorite data points to, to, to prove your case or to show, show the need? Sure, I think one is that there are, for the first time, thousands of New Yorkers with a voucher who can't find a place to stay. Um, and then the second is uh, this chart that I am fond of stealing from the Citizens Budget Commission, where kind of the conventional wisdom in New York is that there's a ton of construction going around all the time. But if you look at our housing production compared to other cities, we're down at the bottom with like Detroit, Philadelphia, Indianapolis, all these other cities that we don't necessarily compare ourselves to in any other context. And the cities that are growing and booming are at least trying to build enough housing to keep up with how much demand there is for them. Yeah, look, I think I would add that um, we hit up against uh, a lot of conversations around uh, we don't want more, well, what if we don't want, but we don't want more housing, um, we really want more affordable housing, and I think it took a little while in the conversation to realize that we had to be also talking about the city and state spend, it's a sort of data thing, but spend every dollar we get from the feds to create affordable housing. We are stretching and pulling and creating new programs and you know reinventing whatever we can to get every deal in our pipeline done, and as everyone in this room would know, we can't do every deal that's in our pipeline. We have, you know, we only have 100 deals probably between us um, at the door that could get done if we had more federal resources. So it's a, it's a, um, I think we had to sort of change some of the conversation some way along the way around we need 400,000 new units, additional units of housing, and we can't produce 400,000 more affordable housing units over the next 10 years, more than what we're doing today. We are sort of at the max of what we can produce, barring the federal government coming in, or you know maybe some marginal resources around the edges. Um, but I think that sort of those, the, the conversation around production, um, to your, and I also love that chart about sort of where not only New York City, but also where all New York State suburbs, especially some New York City suburbs, fall relative nationally on per capita production, way at the bottom of the chart. Uh, I think actually the New York, uh, the New York State suburbs are behind uh, every suburb combined, <laughs> um, uh, relatively. Um, that we we have to be talking about overall housing supply production. We can't. Sounds strange to say it as sort of the state housing commissioner who focuses primarily on affordable housing, but we can't, we don't have the resources to double what we do today. So it really does have to be a private, uh, um, uh, sort of a public private market rate um, housing solution as part of that. And that was kind of, a, I think, I'm not sure if it's a data piece, but it was something sort of fact we had to bring into this conversation that I'm not sure people accepted, but um, it certainly, I think, was a little unclear to people why they couldn't say to us, like, well, you guys should just do more. Along those lines, in, the, in these conversations that you've been having as you've been trying especially to convince state legislators to, to support the governor's plan, which the mayor has been supportive of and, and support other priorities of the city, has there been a particular um, myth or a particular misconception that is most often coming up that you've been trying to dispel in conversations, whether it's with legislators or it's with local uh, community boards or other community groups or whoever it may be? Do you find that in this conversation around growth, around supply and demand, 
that there's particular myths or misconceptions that are the most prominent? I mean, I think one of the um, challenges you hit in general in sort of community work, to the extent this is a piece, a piece of this is that, um, is that if you say no, nothing happens, right? So I think part of this conversation about we need more housing, we, what we come up against is like, we don't want any more housing in our, in our town, our city, our village. We have too many people here, we have traffic, we have schools, we have you know, just sort of bigger issues. But it's sort of, it, it, I think there's this assumption that if people don't accept additional housing as a community, that then nothing will happen, it'll stay exactly how it is. And that's not true, not only because you know things may get built and they may not be where or what people want, but also because housing prices will go up because of uh, the limited supply, that it just means over time that you can't afford to live there because you're attacking them you know, for whatever reason, or your kids, and all the sort of stories we told about whether it's your kids wanting to come back, your um, parents wanting to downsize, your parents wanting to move closer. Um, that those, though, and again, it's not sort of like a, a housing myth per se, as much as the sort of confrontation with this notion that saying no does not mean you get to control your destiny, right? And that we actually need to change that and say what we really want you to do is be part of the solution in a way that's constructive and that's thoughtful and that's locally planning and, and thinking about how you want your town to grow. Um, I'm not sure we won that, that argument with people, but I do think there's this real perception that nothing, if I do nothing, nothing will change, when in fact the world is getting a lot less affordable year over year than we've been doing this. And that's a real change and a real impact for people. One of the things I see regularly is this um, notion that even if you build more, rent prices are not going to go down. And the response that you see sometimes as well, the, there's the, the greater potential to break the increase curve, the, the, the graph on that. How do you have those, those conversations with people about sort of what growth will really result in what it will really mean on the ground when you are having those those difficult conversations. How do you how do you sort of conceptualize for people the the po positives of growth on a local level when people have some of those perhaps misconceptions about if we just say no to everything, nothing's really going to change, and you bump up against this this issue of well, more housing doesn't mean rents are going to go down. Yeah, I think um, I think being able to more fully have a more full conversation about whether about the ways in which gentrification happens not because we built too much housing but because we built too little is an important change in the narrative which I think is starting to happen. I don't know that we're all the way there, um, and making sure that there's an understanding of how that of, of of how those dynamics function, and you see the neighborhoods that have had a boom where people now get to shop around a little bit. And like there's people in this room kind of sweating because there's four buildings going up all next to each other and people are figuring out which one they like the best when there are neighborhoods that have been more kind of preserved in amber where the rents are really skyrocketing and being able to kind of have that dynamic be more visible to people. I would just add to it, it's really hard to talk about something that spans, we aren't where we are today because of the pandemic or because of the last five right? This is sort of sort of sort of like a decade and maybe or more when you look at work, you know, five decades depending on what part of the issue you're looking at. Um, but if you look at sort of the production, 
there is no like solution that helps people tomorrow in this construct, right? Of like needing more supply, or even maybe two years from now, given sort of development timelines. Right? This is really a long game. So, and, and if we, you know, do nothing, we would all presume it's going to be exactly the same, or even worse, as it relates to increase in and increases in rents and increases in home prices. So, to your point, yes, absolutely, we can. Not only can we not uh, reduce costs and reduce rents, but you know our ability to to I mean uh, you know uh, uh, make them less. But our ability just to stop the rate at which we're going is going to be over a long period of time, and that's not that interesting to someone who has an issue today or an issue tomorrow. So I think the challenge of annual budget cycles, legislative cycles, or election cycles, or whatever it is, is not like supportive of something. To when you're talking about this is really sort of a ten year. You're, everyone's going to feel a little better 10 years from now. It's like, you know, who has time for that tomorrow when you've got a real housing crisis? Yeah, I think one discussion that has been pretty fruitful that I've been having a lot in Albany is this sort of intuitive notion that people understand where you have a neighborhood that you want and care about and want to live in, or you move to New York City and you have a neighborhood that you've heard of and you want to live in, you find that you can't afford it, so you've got to go like one or two subway stops out. So the conversation that we've been having with especially some of the outer borough legislators has been around, you know, a, a constituent in East New York or in the South Bronx probably doesn't have, they're probably not getting constituent calls about 421A or MIH for against or the FAR cap or any of these things. But they should care about it anyway because what it does is it kind of acts as a sponge against gentrification and if you can create as much high density housing in core neighborhoods of New York City, then that will just be able to prevent a few more thousand people from kind of looking to that next subway stop out. And I think that's a, that's a theory that has resonated with people and a sort of intuitive has been helpful. So I think both of the things you both just said, uh, you each just said, lead us into uh, the, the state budget and what just happened, the idea of the uh, cycles that these things go on and the need to take action that will then um, uh, perhaps show benefits at whatever whatever timeline once you begin to act, um, and also the idea of sort of everybody in this together in a way. Um, so, what's each of your assessments on um, the fact that there was not progress made on this issue of increasing housing supply in this state budget? Um, what does that mean, and what were what are key lessons that you took? from this process. Since you're the state housing commissioner, why don't you start? Uh, I mean, look, it was obviously incredibly frustrating. Um, I think we feel that um, we proposed the right plan. It was a really smart and comprehensive <coughs> plan, and we didn't sort of come out of the pieces. We really put the whole thing out there. <coughs> Sorry, how we were going to get to this incremental 400,000 units over the next um, 10 years. So I think we feel good that we went through the data process and the, and the analysis, and we, as people have heard me say, you know, we talked to a, a lot of people um, that have done this in other states, and a lot of people who studied those states and what worked and what didn't work. So I think we feel good about what we went in with. We obviously feel um, frustrated by where we came out, and, and you know, it is not, everyone, most people have asked me, right, but I, I don't get it, like everybody agrees with the problem, everybody agrees with some solution, so why does nothing happen? And I know that's sort of a magical question I don't know the answer to, but um, I think our hope, and you know, we'll see what happens in the next, I think there's 11 days left in the legislative session, so 
not a betting person. I don't know uh, where that will go, but I think there's still, you know, some time to the extent the legislature had said that some stuff they didn't want to happen in the budget and they wanted to happen in the legislative session. Let's see uh, where that goes. There certainly are a couple of New York City things we can talk about that I think would be great to see progress and in some way sort of take off the table so we can focus on some of the other strategies because none of them in their own, um, on their own are going to get us where we need to be. We really need a series of, you know, five or six different important tools to get um, the production we need. Um, so I think we'll see what the next 11 days brings and, and then go for that. Lessons from the budget process. Uh, are there things that you and the governor and the executive uh, branch took away from this process of putting that plan out there, of taking something on that nobody has been taking on, uh, and, and, and it resulting in what we've seen? Yeah, I think we will spend a lot of time this summer and in the fall, um, and we have already sort of engaging with people about what worked, what didn't work, what they heard, what we could change. We have been doing this the whole time, but sort of more formally, what we could change, what it could look like. I think there are some fundamental pieces of this around, you know, what people were sort of referred to as the builder's remedy, but kind of like the enforcement tools that are big hills, and those are not things that are, you know, easy to just go out and do a debrief and say, oh, if we just, you know, done that look that piece a little differently, it would have gone through. Um, I think this notion that we're going to uh, set a framework and that if it's not, uh, people aren't doing their part, there has to be sort of a consequence, is a very um, significant part of this. It was not one that the governor was willing to um, give up and to get something passed that was just going to be um, a program that didn't actually produce anything or didn't really have the results. So um, I think that will be sort of the big hill to climb as we go into next year. Um, you know, so there's plenty for everyone in this room to kind of cry into our beers about about the state budget, and we've got 11 days to see if we can fix it. But that said, I kind of want to pause for a second. I'm not necessarily known as an optimistic person, but I just want to take a bow for a minute on behalf of the NYCHA team and on behalf of all the City Hall team who worked so hard because nobody thought we could get the trust last year and nobody thought that we could get ERAP for NYCHA this year. So we did, in fact, have two big wins in Albany. It's a town not known for you know standing up for NYCHA. So we're really, really proud of that. And that was something that nobody believed we could pull off. So there's some silver lining there that gives me some hope. Um, and I think there's 11 days left. You know, today's a session day, so everyone go back up on Monday um, and help us fight for it. And I do think that there's still an energy up in Albany that is gives me hope for some momentum or something. On the issue of the governor's housing compact, the questions around mandatory growth, um, override mechanisms. Was the city vocal enough in support? Are there ways in which yeah, you at the city level are thinking about ways that you can be more supportive now looking ahead? I mean, there's obviously this session, you're trying to get some major things done, we'll get to that in one second. But as you look ahead to this long game, the governor has you know very much acknowledged her, her chance really often is in the budget to really set the agenda, so it's much more looking ahead to, to next year on the big picture. Um, are, the ways, are the ways the city can be more vocal? Is the city leery of some of this? You know, how, how, how is the city thinking about the, the housing compact? So I'm, I'm from Massachusetts, so the housing compact has been sort of an amazing reflection of things that is sort of radical here, but is very common in other high-cost places across the country. 
Um, I think where where the next phase of this is going to be is is we're saying kind of going town to town and saying you know what three percent is in your town it's like sixty four at point five that's really trying to show where the rubber meets the road for some of these um, and where the compact is kind of the legal framework or the builder's remedy for what happens if you fail to build enough housing we also have this agenda list of the tools that we would need in order to be able to get anywhere close that we would also need you know we're we're trying to build as much housing as we can. We don't have all the tools that we need to do it, and many of those lie in Albany, but we would have needed both in order to really knock it out of the park on housing production. My sense, to stick with this for a moment, my sense of things included that there were a lot of city-based, you know, a lot of the tension was on the suburbs, but there were a lot of city-based legislators who were not necessarily in, in favor of growth targets. You got at this in terms of uh, a wide variety of communities and, and neighborhoods. Is it part of your thinking, your role, the mayor's role to start to really build that collective sense of the, this is something we really need going into next year and all? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and we've got some we've got some tough Eulers through to prove that point. Um, and we are we found we have a housing target of our own. So I think it's really it's 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 such a nice change. I mean, Rosanna and I worked together a long time in a lot of different chairs, but the newfound kind of collaboration between the city and state on this, I think, is going to be really critical to get across the finish line. And the, and the governor's role, she um, again took something on that hadn't been taken on. Getting lots of plaudits uh, for that. Um, what do you think the atmosphere is in Albany and around the state in terms of how the governor goes about sending, of course, top officials to really get into the weeds? But what's the what's the sort of governor's outlook and governor's role in, in taking this statewide? She's talked about more education, building more consensus. How, how's that going to go? I know it's it's too soon that you haven't necessarily laid out the roadmap, but what are you starting to think about what that looks like for, especially for the chief executive? Um, I think that the governor certainly does not think that doing nothing is an option, unlike perhaps um, the legislative bodies. And so, uh, you know, you've heard her make uh, mention to executive order. She certainly, you know, I think we had. 24 hours before she was sort of back at us with, okay, but we you know where are we going from here, what are we doing, and what's our plan, and what's our map, and what's next year, and what's the summer. Um, so we, um, you know, I, I think I think we will get, as I said, we'll sort of get a lot of input from folks sort of in the near term, and I think we will be back out, not necessarily with the exact same proposal or the same pieces, and maybe some of them will come off uh, the table or they'll get modified. But I think she doesn't, um, you know, as everybody knows, there's no, there's, there's no, there, it, there is, <laughs> they're really doing nothing really isn't an option because it's not going to get any better and there is not um, it doesn't look like there's a lot of stuff that may come out of the legislature so we have to be um, taking that leadership role and being right back out there next year with a bigger coalition um, and more support for um, certainly pieces of this if not all of it say a little bit more about this idea of doing nothing's not an option but also the governor saying I'm not taking uh I don't know, not even half a loaf. I mean, that's not even, you know, but I'm not taking a tenth of a loaf um, that might have been available. I don't think we publicly know exactly how all the negotiations with the two chambers of the legislature went. From my understanding, there were different things happening in the Senate and the Assembly, so it's 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 complicated. Um, but, but say a little bit more about why not take um, 
you know, target growth with incentives and no requirements, no uh, overrides, you know, why not set that up uh, at this point as a framework um, to then come back next year for more? Well, I'd say a couple things, right? One, you, we know and people have heard me sort of say that other places that tried these incentives didn't work and they always came back for mandates. Um, they also started a long time ago and so they had perhaps the luxury of time of, of going through multiple years and multiple tries um, at incentives. Um, so we feel really strongly that we have to have a mandate. And as you know, once, you know, if were we to pass something that was a bit uh, half loaf or, or watered down this year, it isn't like we get to come back next year and be like, great, we're good. Let's just see how we do for five years. And we would know we're not going to get any change. And so therefore, what's the point of doing that? And I think there's a big difference between um, getting pieces of the agenda proposed as as they were proposed versus taking sort of a bigger version of it with really you know enforcement and not watered down. So I don't think we would. Um, while we've heard places talk about incentives, and I think we're trying to think about um, how we do do that with state funding um, that, that we have that is uh, goes to localities. I don't think that. Um, it's realistic that, they, that you can pass something that we know isn't really going to make things different and that we're really going to have a chance to go back the following year with the legislature and make it um, different. It is very hard to get big things through the legislature. So it's, uh, it's um, I think all the pressure is on to really make sure we get the best thing we can and we do it. People too often lump the New York City suburbs together. There's significant differences in a whole host of ways, one of which is I've heard from and, and others have heard from folks in Westchester who say we're not as opposed to growth as certain communities on Long Island especially. We don't want the mandates and we don't want the overrides, but we want to really work on growth and incentives. We've done some of that. Is that part of, of the next step of, of what you're talking about there? Is it really trying to up the ante, so to speak, in terms of working with willing partners to pursue growth? Yeah, I mean, to your to top of your question, there's, I think it's uh, 1,539 units of government in the state of New York. So when we were looking at this proposal, we were doing it at the unit of government that had zoning power. And that is actually much more than like California has. I think they have something like 800 units of government. Uh, so among those 1,500, they all have a different opinion, uh, and they all probably liked and didn't like different pieces of the compact. So to your you know sort of point about the suburbs, it wasn't like everybody uh, liked or disliked um, only one part or you know or another. Um, <laughs> there, there was wide uh, disagreement with what people liked and didn't like. Um, but I, uh, I we did have great conversations with some of the a lot of the local um, mayors in Westchester who to your uh, comment were very supportive of Road Talk and feel like they are doing a lot. It was of everybody, but it was certainly a lot of them. So I think we um, took a lot of that as um, uh, a sort of wind in our sails and a way to try to look at how we could combine um, a growth target with incentives to say, you're already doing it, so this shouldn't be something that you're necessarily sort of adverse to. And then let's talk about how to, how to make this better for you and how to get, whether it's you know sewer or roads or whatever the upgrades or infrastructure upgrades are kind of one of the main um, things that, that locals, localities are looking for, how do we make that better for you? So I think that's um, going to be certainly a place that we spend a bit of time in over the summer and fall. The city's priorities right now. 11 days of legislative session. I'm, I'm going by your account. I haven't, I haven't counted them. I, I see it as, because those are the session days, I see it you know, as, as roughly a, a month here, but not, but not even perhaps. Um, 
what are the top things that you're hopeful that you're, you're trying to convince legislators to support um, uh, over this over this next few weeks? Sure. So we need a we need a new tax incentive program to incentivize new construction. Um, we need a revived J51 to incentivize renovation of existing affordable housing. Um, we are continue to go for a basement legalization program, not the full ADU to family homes everywhere, but just to keep people safe in their homes. Um, right now, our primary policy around people in basements is that we will, when a rainstorm is coming, we will text you and tell you to try to seek higher ground. So that, that doesn't sit well with me with hurricane season blooming. Um, and we've seen people die already, and there, there will be more if we do nothing on this subject. Um, and then we, uh, I think we've gotten closer than we've ever had before on the FAR cap. That's been actually a significant movement. So we're still in a conversation around the FAR cap. And then finally, we have to figure out what the future of work and the future of Manhattan is. And so figuring out a reasonable and robust program around office conversions and a tax incentive to make that to smooth the pathway for office conversions is another top priority for us. That's it? <laughs> is that list in order? Was that? I mean, I, I, I didn't ask you to no, put it in order. Really, no. It, what, you're not going to get all of that being being real, right? So, what is what is the top? Uh, what are the top? Let's say two priorities there. Is it the tax incentive 421A replacement? Is it, uh, if you can't get that, trying to get, I don't know if the sort of grandfathering extension of the projects in the pipeline, if, if that's still live in discussions, what, what's at the top of the list where you say to legislators, you gotta give us this? Yeah, I think a new 421A is definitely at the top of the list, however ambitious that may sound. Um, and then also we really need a plan for office conversions. That's something that really can't wait, I think. Where the, the future of our city is going to depend on how nimble we can be in terms of, I don't think any of us can predict what the future of work is or what the future of Midtown Manhattan is. We have to give ourselves every tool to be flexible if we're going to bounce back. Is the hang up on the ladder uh, affordability requirements as part of such a program? Is there daylight in terms of getting to an agreement on that that you can see? I hope so. I have no choice but to believe that. So we're going we're gonna to continue to fight for one, but I really think that that program is trying to do two things at once. Yes, we do want affordable housing, but also we just want to figure out how we can pivot the neighborhoods that have been primarily focused on offices. So we want to do both at the same time, and it's going to be hard to find that balance in a way that everyone can agree to, but we, are, we, we do need to try to do both. Is there a way to crack the 421A nut in the legislature? I mean, this seems like something where um, you know there's there's more data coming out regularly that shows the, the lack of uh, permits you know being issued and applied for. Um, people are, are screaming about this, but it seems like there's a lot of deaf ears. Is there? I know you offered a program previously, then decided not to offer a program in this year's agenda, but try to open that up to conversation. Where does that stand? Yeah, last year we tried to uh, address the things that people didn't like about the program, right? They didn't like 130 AMI, the term of the benefit or the value benefit. So, you know, we sort of listened to all that and, and came forward and said, okay, here's, we understand you don't like, uh, you know, these five elements, so here's a new program with those things changed. Let's talk about 
the AMI, let's talk about the benefit period, you know, there, there's all these little pieces. Um, there was not a negotiation about it. There was really no conversation um, at all, which was uh, frustrating, not to overuse that word. Um, but uh, so we, this year, basically came in and said, we still stand by that same proposal, happy to negotiate on it at any point in time. The, the program, right, it's, it's a little like lumpy over the years, but let's call it like 10,000 units a year, maybe on average, that it creates. It's not an insignificant, insignificant amount of housing in the city of New York, and if we talk about the last decade or we look at the next decade and you're talking about 100,000 units or 150,000 units prospectively, that's a big impact on the city where that production just to sort of dry up and not be there. So it is hard in the conversations um, to sort of get at uh, the sort of why there can be you no know, even sort of engagement on something that we would argue creates a lot of housing for the city of New York, which is good. Re requires affordability that basically everybody takes advantage of good, right? If you don't like the AMI, let's change it. If you don't like some stuff, let's tweak. Um, but it has been, there's not been a counter proposal from the legislature on it. There's not been, to just been my, um, uh, you know, uh, telling of it, not really any engagement with um, let's look at how we change it. So I don't know, it's it's, um, it's, it's frustrating. <laughs> it's also one of the only ways we have to do housing and affordable housing at very high cost parts of the city. Yeah. And it's also one of the only ways that we have to do mixed income housing in high cost parts of the city. So where we're trying to get back on the kind of President Obama vision of affirmatively furthering fair housing, this is a really, really important tool that we have to accomplish that. Yeah, and to go back to the numbers, right? If, if, if Fortune and is producing something between, you know, maybe 10 or 15,000 units a year, and 25% of those are affordable, and we're talking about two and a half, three and a half, four and a half thousand units, what are you, what, I don't know if the city does on sort of new construction alone, but maybe five or six. So like it's another 50% on top of what the city, to go back to the comment about we are producing as much affordable housing as we can. So this is a way that we get sort of 50% more production of that without using, without the need for federal resources that we can do by zoning, we can do by a tax incentive. It's a really important tool and I think that um, sort of the, the counterfactual to it, right, of like what happens when it's not there, we presume is either no building, market rate condos, you know, everybody's favorite um, housing type in the, in, the, in the affordable housing world, or the world, yeah, right, the, 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 the sort of has a lot of ire. So we're either gonna get no housing, uh, luxury condos, or all market rentals maybe if like the tax works out. So it's not like the, uh, the alternative is an outcome anybody wants, right? What we want is the thing that the program produces, which is mixed income housing, often in very high market areas that otherwise we would not be able to produce ourselves, for sure, as, as government. Is there any way for there to be more city uh, momentum behind this? The mayor getting some group of like-minded uh, local elected officials to try to, you know, garner more support for this. Where is the the sort of movement, the momentum behind this? Because the clock is, you know, obviously ticking, and we're going to get in a moment to the things the city is doing, regardless of state action and trying to push ahead on, but key to the city's goals, as you're getting at, is mandatory inclusionary housing, which, as you're both talking about, 421A and MIH go uh, hand, hand in glove in a lot of ways. Um, how can the city, uh, I don't know, be more aggressive, get get help get this, get this done in these next uh, few weeks? The, you know, the mayor's been very vocal about 421A and building, like, you, you actually can build your way out of this. That's another myth that we hear a lot. Like, that's actually the only way. That, that's the only tool that we have to get out of this housing crisis. 
Um, I'm a little bleary-eyed this morning because I was in Albany until late last night, and we'll continue to pound the pavement up there on a retail way. And again, I think the strongest argument that gets some kind of traction has been around kind of 421A as a sponge against gentrification. And so that I, I think there's more energy up there. I'm, again, optimism is not my currency, but I think there's certainly more energy up there now than there was this time last year where nobody really wanted to talk about 45. So at least we're, we're, at least we're talking. Before we come back to what the city's doing on executive action by the governor, one thing I was thinking about, um, and, and again, this is just uh, just me throwing it out there, uh, around the governor talking about using executive action, is this idea of um, extending the 428 projects in the pipeline, is there any room for executive action on that? Because, you know, the pandemic delayed things, or there were other, you know, uh, mitigating factors, is, is that at all on the menu for something that there could be an executive action? Uh, look, I think suffice to say the governor has us looking at every, under every stone to see what we can do. Um, we've heard her uh, talk about um, what are the state-owned sites we can help contribute to this. Um, we've been looking at um, discretionary funding, and certainly looking at every tool we can. You know, where we'll sort of land on those things and when, I'm not sure. But I, but we for sure are looking at every option we have because if the legislature isn't going to act or we're going to be back at this next year, we really don't have time to just let a whole sort of year go by and nothing happen. So it's sort of imperative on us to figure out what is it that we can do to either keep some things going or get some new things um, moving that we hadn't done before. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the, the one specific I've heard the governor mention on executive action is state-owned property. Mm -hmm. What's that discussion like? What's What are you looking at and, and where could we potentially see some sort of ex executive action on, on that front? Yeah, I mean, the state doesn't have a ton of, you know, sort of as of right, so, you know, we, we just certainly didn't have sort of the in rent stock like the city had. Um, but there are state-owned parcels. Um, uh, a certain, uh, there's a lot there's um, a lot of stuff upstate. There's sort of more in the flavor of kind of decommissions, whether it's decommissioned prisons or old OPWDD campuses or, or office of mental health campuses or um, what I might call some of these more difficult development type, uh, to difficult to develop type sites. Um, but there's also, you know, things beyond that and more kind of little smaller things so we're really looking at everything to see what sort of a um, possible sort of strategy for some of those sites going forward on that front where where does the discussion stand on city-owned sites um, there in the as, as you well know in the prior administration there was lots of debates over how many vacant lots the city owns and whether they're buildable and what's in the pipeline and what's not and back and forth especially between the mayoral administration and the controller at the time um, but then that often left out some of the you know, city-owned properties that have a sanitation garage or something like that where people say maybe, maybe something could be moved, maybe something could be done. Is that, what, what's on your radar in terms of city-owned sites that could be um, developed into housing? So we continue to have a robust pipeline of RFPs coming through in terms of city-owned sites. I think the standard for community engagement on those gets higher and higher every year. So on the one hand, that means we get a better product that's more collaborative and a product of what the community 
really want to want to want to do there and the kind of mixed uses that communities want to do, but it also means that they take longer. Um, and as Ruthann said, we have a pipeline out the door for several years. So right now, while we are looking at every single city on site, even the not just the vacant ones but the underutilized ones, at the moment our biggest limiting factor, despite the largest capital budget that HPD has ever seen, is federal tax credits and our ability to push things through that pipeline. So that's really been a limiting factor as opposed to the sites. If I found a brand new city on site today, it would still be several years before I could get to it in our line. Um, but that's not to say that we don't need to start building that pipeline for the future and taking a look at everything we can. You just take the train south, right? So you went to Albany and now we're just going to DC and be like, hi, now we're here. Yes. Please. Um, so let's let's talk more about what the city is doing on its own, get stuff built. Uh, huge number of initiatives um, from relatively small to relatively large scale. Uh, there's obviously a citywide zoning text amendment in development, uh, so maybe let's get back to that. But in terms of the get stuff built agenda, where is progress being made? How's that going? What's the city pushing ahead on? Um, you know, nothing. nothing's fully independent of, of what happens at the state level, but what's the city pushing ahead on? Sure. So Get Stuff Built is this suite of more than 100 recommendations, some of you know it as BLAST, that were an effort to really take a look at like the nitty gritty bureaucracy that all of you in this room deal with every day in terms of what it takes to get stuff built um, in New York City and that kind of interagency ping pong that we put you through and figuring out how to solve for that. The vast majority of the recommendations in that report are things that the city can do on its own, but those, you know, those processes and those systems have built up over time, so we're working really hard to try to untangle the thicket of rules and kind of the gauntlet that we put everybody through as we do development, so that's really critical. We do have um, the citywide text amendment zoning for housing opportunity, which is another place where we don't need all these um, say-so in order to make it easier. So every place where we can appeal back the layers of requirements and make it a little bit easier, a little bit more efficient, a little bit less expensive to do development in New York City, and we're gonna, you know, and that, that's gonna be a big mountain to climb, so we're gonna need everybody in this room to help, but we have found that there's significant places where you can, you know, move a couple commas around in the zoning code, which many of you here know well, that will, would have a significant impact in a very relatively short period of time in terms of efficiency. We have the largest capital budget that we've ever had in housing over the next 10 years, and, you know, it's not going to be enough without some of these larger initiatives. On uh, the zoning text amendment, very complicated, takes some time. Where do you, do you have a sense of where in, in the timeline we are and having that um, when it's going to be ready for some public review? Because obviously, once you even start uh, under public review, it takes some time to potentially get it through all the steps. So, I think this is one of the things that we liked so much about the governor's proposal is that it would have allowed us to do some of those citywide changes um, with less fanfare. Um, so now we're going to just do it the in the regular in the regular lane, um, not being not being given a fast lane by the legislature. We're going to do it in the regular lane. So that does take time with our current system, and we're going to take a crack at sort of every piece of the zoning code that makes it just a little bit harder every step of the way. So I think that ought to be that we're doing the kind of preliminary vetting with folks now to make sure that we we are in the right place in terms of how impactful this could be, and then at some point next year that will start to be, the actual formal public process will start to get. Next year. Um, 
Remind, remind folks a couple of the key planks that you're looking to ensure are in that zoning text amendment and the type of impact that you think they could potentially have to achieve housing growth. Sure, so you know, New York City is a little behind in terms of the way in which we deal with parking restrictions. So the ways in which we treat parking minimums and how much parking we require, we already have embedded in a prior citywide text amendment this idea of a transit zone or not a transit zone or how much do you need parking for affordable versus not affordable housing. So we'll definitely try to up the ante on that. Then there's also just a lot of other nips and tucks that we've done to the zoning code over the years that just make it more complex to even know what you can build. Um, and little places where if you unlock some potential on these sites where you can build a lot more. And then we also want to really take a look at what, what it means to be and kind of walk the walk on transit-oriented development and how that's going to look across the city because we have a very significant transit, um, you know, we have the, the biggest transit hub in the country and yet we're sort of, you know, in a, we don't think about it that way in terms of our zoning all the time. Uh, that's exactly where I was going to go next if you didn't get there. So say a little bit more about it because one of the things I found most interesting about transit-oriented development at, at the state level proposal was, was again, what it would do in the city. Um, very often the focus in the suburbs along the commuter rails, but in the city, you know, there's places that, that the subway gets that are relatively underbuilt or, or low density, should we say. Um, how, how are those, are those initial conversations happening to get the support from local community leaders, local elected officials? Is that, are we not quite there yet? Or is that something that's, that's already in the works to sort of, when this comes out, to be able to say, we've been having a lot of these proactive conversations and there is some, some interest or some support or at least a lack of the sort of vocal type of opposition that we, we saw with some of the, the state. You know, it's New York City, so there's going to be vocal opposition no matter what we do. But the, I think we're seeing some good with the with the ULRs that we've gotten through in the last year that were seemed, you know, unsurmountable at the time, and we managed to find some consensus with local council members that wanted to work with us. On TOD, we have this Metro North stations that we're doing a corridor rezoning there that's giving us some faith that this is possible in New York. And I think that increasingly, you know, we have the, the Ruthanne talked about kind of the, the pain of doing nothing. Um, I think increasingly what was felt like a daunting city council landscape, I personally was really worried about what term limits would do to a housing plan, right? If by definition, even if you're the most pro-housing city council member, you need to get reelected in two years, but I'm not going to show you this beautiful fancy new building for another five years. That's just a structural mismatch, so I was pretty worried about that, but I think over the past year, we've been very pleasantly surprised and worked really hard to build some consensus with council members, and I think that the council members are starting to see that there's a benefit to building housing and there's some pain to refusing to build housing. So I think that political dynamic is changing in ways that I think are positive for everybody. Where, what is the role of um, other rezonings? You're, you're dealing, you're looking at this citywide zoning text amendment, but there's also um, you you have the Metro North 
rezonings happening, you have one or two others happening. What's the administration's latest viewpoint on neighborhood community rezonings? The mayor, as a candidate, talked about zoning wealthier areas of the city. He had a couple of uh, specifics that he, he put to that, but generally speaking, was sort of going back to say, uh, relative to part of the conversation we had very early on today, that when you go into especially communities of color and you say gentrification is only going to continue to to sort of uh, run wild here if we don't add housing supply here some of the response often is well what about in the those communities what about in those whiter wealthier communities where there were down zonings under uh mayor bloomberg uh so so where is that thinking i know there's always discussion uh from from mayors and commissioners and such about wanting things to be community-led or come from local uh, council members and such but where do neighborhood rezonings fit into the vision at this point so i was really proud that during the campaign the then candidate eric adams came out in favor of the soho rezoning which despite you know not being his neck of the woods necessarily he really saw that argument about how freezing soho and amber then creates more gentrification in brooklyn um, so that was that was a big one that was just before the start of the administration then we had this very pitched battle in Thromsnek early on last year where you know we made it clear that we had to go up there many, many times and said you cannot freeze your community in amber and we have to build more housing here in a community that had built virtually nothing in many years. Um, and then there are cases where we are working really productively with the community and it doesn't always have to be adversarial where we're working very closely with Councilmember Hudson on a stretch of Atlantic Avenue that has a ton of potential that is unmet and that's something that will help the housing supply for the city overall, but also really help kind of, it, but also has huge benefits to the local community as well. Anything else coming, you know, are you, are you looking to do more of those? Are you, are you actively sort of pursuing to say, these are lower density areas where we want to pursue up zonings or other other priorities or top of this first? I mean, I think there's four or five community rezonings that we're working on right now, and then there's three big citywide text amendments. So we're going to continue to kind of build that pipeline that, well, at this point, would be out a few years in terms of what's next. But we have been really pleasantly surprised at the collaboration that the city council has shown when that didn't seem in the cards this time last year. Another big uh, debate over a rezoning was with Innovation Queens. The deal to be reached uh, wound up requiring the city subsidy. Uh, very often, these conversations that come down to even a very large rezoning like that, um, local council members and others want the city to be putting in that money and then you have people raising flags to say well every dollar you put into that project to uh, add affordability is is money that can't go to uh, help produce affordability elsewhere even if you are increasing um, the budget how is how is the administration thinking about those discussions about those specific types of rezonings that are private applications and local council members are sort of demanding that the city comes in and puts money on the table. Well, I mean, when when some people talk about Innovation Queens or some of the other larger rezonings that we've done, it makes me want to go back to a 421A discussion because none of this is going to work without that. There's no amount of capital that I can sub in that will solve for that problem. Um, and then, you know, I think 
Long Island City is a great example of a community that has changed so much over the past 10 years and we really wanted to make sure that we create this one yeah, big juicy parcel smack in the middle of it that we wanted to make sure that we did something that the community could stand by but also one that was feasible and that we could get out the door so i think that negotiation was a hot one but it was also such a large parcel that had so much potential that we're proud of where it turned out the um city budget discussion is happening right now you mentioned putting in record amounts. There was a promise from the mayor and a push for even more. Uh, where is that conversation on the capital side uh, as we are in the in the city budget process here? And also in the city budget process on the operating side, uh, questions around whether HPD has the resources it needs, has the personnel it needs to be able to move these deals along that you both mentioned are you know, in the pipeline. Um, so the primary barrier right now to hiring at HPD is hiring at HPD. We have the we have the vacancies right now. So as soon as I hire them all up, then I'll happily go back and fight for more. Uh, at the moment, we just need to get more. You know, everyone call the your favorite recent graduate and tell them that city government is where it's at. And I both got our start and a lot of people in this room as well. And I think there's never been a more challenging or a more exciting time to be in public service. So I think that's starting to turn around. There's been a lot of good hiring over there in the last couple months. Um, and there's always a lot of shakeout when there's a change of administration. So that part wasn't a surprise. Um, and I think that's, I mean, hiring has been a problem across the board in the private sector as well. So we're definitely feeling the brunt of it as well, making sure that we can recruit talent and retain great talent. But I think that that's a, that's a larger structural problem that I think we're all grappling with. Uh, not that you are in charge of uh, the workforce policies, but uh, to what extent are you seeing that challenges at places like HPD relate to work from home and flexibility on that? And is that something where, uh, as a chief housing officer, you're like, you know, I want to push housing projects ahead, housing policy ahead. This is the, one of these big things in my way and sort of knocking on the door of whoever's door you need to knock on, whether it's the mayor or somebody else, to say, we got to figure out these pieces of the personnel policy. And I think that the the deal with DC 37 is going to include some flexibility around work from home. Um, and I think that there was a definitely a sigh of relief from the agencies and those responsible for hiring when that was announced. Um, I really love coming into the office. <laughs> I like working in an office. Maybe it's because I have two little kids. But I think that that's definitely going to be an important piece of the puzzle. Um, and so hopefully that's going to eat that, hopefully that will be productive. Ruthann, without um, the housing contact passing on the state level, but, but knowing what the city has going on, separate from helping to get a 421A replacement pass and some of these other things legislatively, are there ways the state is supporting, can support the city more? If the housing compact passed, you were looking probably at a very good build out of your agency. Um, are there ways that your your agency can or should build out more to support localities, or are there things that you could do to help in the city's efforts as is? Uh, yeah, as so Jessica said at the top, we work really closely together now. There's a lot of resources that come the sort of through the state and go to the city in a, in a 
done that for a long time, so I think we continue to support them there um, and have worked really closely, as, as you heard Jessica sort of rattle off, every, every whether it's FAR 12 or 421A or basements or office conversions, right? we are working very closely on uh, policy, on drafting, on strategy um, to try to get that stuff done. I think sort of on our, for our part, I don't think we, um, you know, had really occupied a role around the state as it related to planning and zoning and housing production. So I think that is new for us and um, I think we will continue to build that out a little bit, uh, both in terms of how we think about our role, but also um, how to create more transparency around the state. I think that, um, you know, not everybody wants to get civically engaged, but for those that do, there isn't always a place to go to look at what's really going on as it relates to sort of housing in my community. And so I think we're trying to posit ourselves a little more um, in that space to be helpful, to be a resource. And also, you know, ultimately this, I think, is about highlighting places that have done the policies we're talking about that are great places to live, that people want to be, and to say this is not something that people need to be, you know, you don't have to be afraid of density, or if you are, let's just talk about what kind of density we're talking about. We're not talking about, you know, ever bringing, you know, central Manhattan level of density to places outside New York City. We're talking about appropriate suburban type of density, and I think when people go to places that they like, that have lots of shops and lots of restaurants and a train stop and people that live there, you know, that, that envelope people should see as actually like a function of land use, not just like this just happened because, uh, you know, this is a, a someone had a magic wand, this is a, uh, an intentional um, creation of a place, and that that should be happening, whether it's around TOD or in other communities, um, but that it sort of has its roots in land use. So I think to the extent we can um, help continue that conversation through being here or being everywhere and, um, is a new role for us that we haven't really sort of occupied before. Mostly we are looking at, you know, production and our housing plan and working with all the people in this room to, to get housing built across the state. On that front, I know there's more that is being advanced in their uh, portfolio, but in the state budget, the Department of Environmental Con Conservation got a significant increase to sort of beef up. Um, did you did you get anything in there that will help you grow, or is that something you might look ahead to for, for next year to say, um, you know, we we need more people, we need more personnel, we need you know we need to we need to grow as we either explore these new functions or actually get to to implement them. Yeah, so we had a big uh, sort of slug of staff in, had the um, compact pass to sort of build that out that um, we don't really need now that we're not going to do a bunch of those functions, but we do have some space and some room um, sort of within our existing structure to start building that out. So I think I'm, we're not sort of worried on the staffing front that we could do that, um, you know, at least going into next year. Let me come back to you, Jessica, but Ruth Ann, your perspective on this as well. Coming back to NYCHA, an area where you said there's been some really major uh, wins for, for the city and for NYCHA over these last two state budgets now. Um, where is NYCHA in this conversation? You know, it's, it's not exactly uh, city or state-owned land, but it's, it's in that realm. It's, uh, where is NYCHA in the conversation around potentially more pursuit of housing growth on NYCHA land? This is obviously something that comes around every once in a while, but there's this much, you know, happening. Is that something that you're taking a fresh look at, especially now that we've seen what happened in the state budget, or you're having these challenges with a 421A replacement? Where does NYCHA uh, sort of development, infill development, come into the discussion? Well, I think infill development can only be in the service of preservation. 
electric, you know? Um, I think the biggest sea change that we've seen in the new administration is making sure that it's NYCHA residents themselves that are telling us what they need in their developments, and they, they really do know better than the government agencies what's necessary and what's advisable on their properties. And what we found is that when you do that in a meaningful way and put tenants in the driver's seat, that sometimes they come back to you, as we saw in Fulton Chelsea, we had a whole renovation scheme planned for Fulton Chelsea. We worked on it for several years. And after really taking a look at the scope and the costs, the tenants came to us and effectively said, please don't give us a million dollars worth of duct tape here. Please don't do it. Build us something brand new. We deserve it. Everyone else in this whole neighborhood is getting brand new housing except for us. And we're worried that in five years, we're going to be just as bad off if you try to renovate these buildings that have been around for almost 100 years. So that was something that was effectively a demand from the tenants themselves, and we're working through what's possible on that site. But that's only that's only an option right now because the tenants demanded it of us. Anything on your radar on that front? We talk about the governor looking at all options, executive action, and so forth. Is that, is that something that enters your uh, in your desk, or is it more of a solution? I mean, it's more of a city thing. We certainly follow their lead and try to be supportive. And, and, and as Jessica, um, you know, well deserves the um, uh, praise for actually getting the trust left through last year, which I think people didn't really did not think uh, was possible actually at all. Um, uh, so I think we, you know, try to really just support that kind of the way we do all housing authorities across the state. Um, they're just not alone. Uh, you can certainly go to Buffalo and, and other housing authorities across the state, and they are equally trying to reinvent and, and take what's a very, very old housing stock and not just. Uh, duct tape it as well, but it's a few more innovative things. So really just a support role. We're in our last few minutes here, and thank you both uh, for all the time and thoughts. So last couple questions. Um, you've gotten at this a couple times. I've asked you about this a little bit, but what's what's some things you need from other players on the field, people in this room, uh, legislators, city council members who Obviously, you need lots of legislators and others to just sort of agree with you uh, or to come to the table. But for those that are like-minded or more open or for the people in this room, what are some things that you need from other stakeholders here that would be very helpful to getting uh, a whole bunch of these things uh, done, whether they're already happening or they need to be passed? I mean, so we talked about what the state legislative agenda is, and I think every new administration that comes in sort of learns anew the ways in which we are a function of the state and how badly we need the state for so many of the tools that are critical, especially in housing. I think in the federal government, we are really using every penny and every dime that we have of their resources, and so there's a couple of different bills that would allow us to stretch those resources further on the capital and the tax credit, the volume cap side, which would be complete game changers, and which actually have bipartisan support, because that's one of the kind of beauties of the tax credit program is the ways in which it sort of brought together an unusual set of stakeholders, which something like public housing tends to lack, by the way. Um, so that's the, those are some critical resources that we need. And then another piece that I have really tried to follow through on since I took, came into this new role is making sure that not only are we building housing as speedily as possible, but that we're also housing people on the other end as speedily as possible. And that's also something that the federal government um, has been and needs to continue to be in partnership with us on because so much of our, uh, you know, so much of the, all the stuff that we put you through the ringer on when we're housing people on the back end of one of these deals is a federal restriction. Um, and they've shown a you know impressive willingness to work with us on those, so we need more of that. 
first with state agencies, but for probably everyone in this room, it wasn't really in our lane to be talking about production of market rate housing across the state or in New York City, right? We are generally an affordable housing focused group. And so it has been amazing. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful to Jolie and her leadership and so many people in this room who were supportive of the compact, even though it's not necessarily squarely really you know, uh, about affordable housing. Um, but that was critical for us that the conversation could be broad and um, everybody in this room lives somewhere. And in that place, people are probably talking about what is that thing? Why is the state doing it? Why are they you know, forcing things on us we don't want? And all those sort of little micro conversations that happen, um, I think, are helpful to the goal. Um, and, you know, every time I get the chance to go out to, one, to a development that gets built here, I'm also talking to uh, local legislators or state legislators. And each one of those conversations sort of builds on the whole. Um, but I do think that's going to be, we need to continue and we need to amp up in that. Um, every time folks in this room, I think, are talking to legislators um, to be talking about the importance of not just the housing, um, the affordable housing that's going to be built, but really the need for overall housing. Because uh, it is not, um, nobody in this room wants 10,000 applications for every single apartment that comes online. And while it's nice to have a big uh, pool of people to pull from, that is not a sustainable and it's not what we want. And, and part of the solution to that is making sure that there's more, avail or more availability generally. So it does, it has become, I think, our sort of collective agenda outside of just our regular everyday affordable agenda to be talking about the importance of this for the city, for the state, for the economy, for some of all those reasons. So um, I think that is a, it's been a huge change and one that I think has really been helpful and welcomed and very much appreciated by me. Ruth Ann Jessica Katz, thank you both. Thank you.